Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I usually teach the historical and ancient sociological context of scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. But right now I'm doing a series about how not to waste your time with bad study practices, bad resources, and just the general confusion that I faced when I started studying the Bible and was trying to figure out what to do and whose books I should read and really what kind of books I should read. You know, bottom line is that I spent a ton of money on nonsense books from nonsense authors. Really, I'm going to give you some basics on how to avoid a lot of the pitfalls, save money, maximize your time and effort, and get the most out of what you're doing. And the master book list can be found on my website, theancientbridge.com, and I will add to it as needed. If you think that anything about inerrancy, inspiration, and authority is cut and dried or easy to understand, then you have been incredibly misled and have likely only listened to one person who made it sound like they were the only one who had it right or there was only one way to look at it. But there's nothing easy about the topic of inerrancy. If your only exposure to it is through the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy that was put together in 1978 during the quote-unquote, International Council on Biblical Inerrancy, then you might not be clear on what inerrancy has meant historically to various people, or for that matter, clear on an international council needing to be more than a group of American white men having a meeting in Chicago. As an American, can I just say how ridiculous we are that whenever, you know, whatever we do here, we consider to be the world whatever, the international whatever. Like, for example, the world champions in football and baseball are either going to be American or Canadian teams. Whereas, you know, the soccer World Cup is truly a world competition. So the same thing happens in religion with Americans and to a lesser extent Europeans in general tending to think that we are the whole shebang when we aren't even close. The conclusions we come to and the understandings we attempt to assert as normative generally do not reflect what the rest of the world, which actually makes up the majority of the church, is thinking, saying, doing, and believing. And so, far from being worldwide agreed-upon principles, our ideas are often parochial, which means very narrow in applying only to us and our specific denominations. This is why I strongly encourage people to read theology and scholarship, anthropology and ethics from Asian, African, and South American sources, and not just European, you know, which includes Americans. The people who are actually in the trenches pushing the faith into new areas and with persecution, they have a lot to teach us about the Bible. Things that we've lost sight of as we go through our lives of relative religious ease. So to prepare for this, I read a terrific book called Five Views on Biblical Inerrancy from the Counterpoints Bible and Theology series, which does a terrific job of showing that educated, intelligent, dedicated scholars and theologians can look at the same text and see things differently. On Kindle, um, these books are so reasonably priced, even when not on sale, that it's hard not buying them all. 
honestly, though, I believe that if people were more familiar with the idea that we can have differences and that no one has a corner on correct interpretation, a lot fewer people would be drawn into cults where there's always just one true way of seeing and living everything out. The truth is, the better we know the Bible, the more questions we have and not fewer. It's very easy to believe we know it all when we, in fact, don't know enough to even challenge our own assumptions. One thing that I really hope I've instilled in you throughout this series is how incredibly beautiful, nuanced, and complex the Bible is while still being very clear on how allegiance to Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus, is the path to salvation from this present evil age. God wanted that part to be easy. The rest of it, we gotta work for. Now, there are a number of different ideas about, for, and against certain forms of inerrancy doctrine. But before I get to that, I want to make sure you know that the Bible nowhere outright or clearly claims to be inerrant, which means without any sort of error. Inerrancy is what is called a secondary issue because salvation doesn't hinge upon accepting it. And furthermore, it has to be argued based on our interpretation of verses that talk about truth and honesty, which would have been seen differently by the original audience of Scripture. For example, I can tell you a story with an error in it and still be telling you the truth. Allegories, parables, metaphors, poetries, and wisdom sayings all tell the truth, but they do it by not being accurate. Some of the early church fathers saw the Bible as inerrant, quote-unquote, but their definition of inerrancy included the idea that they could treat the Bible as one big allegory where everything could be spiritualized and not everything was historical truth. Modern-day fundamentalists are often guilty of promoting a form of inerrancy where the Bible tells us the absolute, accurate, factual truth about everything including science. And if you don't think that's a problem, then you've never seen a congregation torn apart by how old the earth is, how God created the earth, the shape of the earth, or whether we think with our brains or internal organs. As a matter of fact, my brother was actually removed from the pulpit. He went the pastor, but he would travel preaching it when people needed someone to preach because the pastor was on vacation or when his own pastor was on vacation. And when they found out his views on the age of the earth, they removed him from the pulpit, even though they agree with him on everything else or enough of everything else that it really doesn't matter. Anyway, most people fall in between the two extremes of inerrancy, despite everything being allegorical and inerrancy meaning Absolutely everything in there is scientifically accurate. Outside of America, inerrancy isn't really something that's focused on or talked about. Instead, they focus more on the infallibility of Scripture to accomplish its goals of revealing Yahweh and His plan of salvation to humanity. The closer a society is to the concept of oral culture and storytelling as truth-telling in opposition to the modern American focus on accuracy facts, and the desire for things that can be empirically proven, like science and in modern history books, the less likely uh, they are to get upset about everything having to be just so. A lot of the inerrancy debates 
come down to a person's beliefs in the matter of whether we're supposed to be primarily relational beings with God and one another, guided by the Spirit who uses the Scriptures to accomplish a lot of that guidance, or whether we are people who are to relate primarily to the Bible as an intermediary between ourselves, other humans, and God. Have we been taught that God is our main focus, or do we see the Bible to be our main focus? If we had no more Bibles, would we even see ourselves in relationship with God? Is he big enough to communicate with us if we aren't literate or are without the Bible, as have been the overwhelming majority of believers until just the past few hundred years? Are we people seeking to be led by the Spirit, or do we want to use the Bible to answer all of our questions, even questions it was never meant to answer? Most people I've personally come across to claim the absolute inerrancy of the scriptures believe that we have an absolutely perfect transmission on both the Hebrew and Greek throughout the millennia when we absolutely do not. And we've talked about that here. Our oldest links to the Hebrew Bible are almost entirely in Greek through the Septuagint or sectarian documents such as were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Both of these sources predate our oldest full Hebrew manuscripts of the Bible by approximately a thousand years, and there are significant differences between them. It becomes apparent in reading them that the ancients weren't really that concerned with the individual words or claims, but with the overall meaning. And we also have the testimony of the Greek scriptures where the authors weren't particularly preoccupied with the importance of exact quotations, but we're content to convey the meaning and to even creatively combine verses. And if anyone ever took the scriptures seriously, it was the Jewish scholars who provided those first Greek translations of the Old Testament, and the Qumran community who believed very strongly that everyone else had it wrong, and the disciples of Yeshua too. For that matter, Yeshua didn't always give pretty quotations either. And during those days, they actually read Aramaic paraphrases of the Bible, complete with some very interesting and sometimes sketchy commentary in the synagogues after the reading of the Hebrew. Augustine, who argued for an allegorical reading of the Bible, had very interesting ideas about what constitutes inerrancy. I'm quoting from that Five Views book. Here we go. Love is fundamental to truth. Hence, the prominent early church theologian Augustine of Hippo asserts that if we read scriptures in ways that lead us to love, we read it truthfully. Likewise, if we read it in ways that do not lead to love, then we misread it no matter what else we affirm that it teaches. Awesome, right? You gotta love it. And if people would only do that, no one would be arguing today that slavery is okay, despite some abuses like John MacArthur, or that women should submit to polygyny, um, multiple wives, or any number of things in the Bible in its historical context. Sometimes allowed but never claimed were either holy or loving in the Bible, all right? Now, I will say that the Chicago Statement, when read properly, does at least try to hedge its claims that the Bible is completely without error. For one, they claim that the original autographs were without error. 
And an autograph is an original document, whereas a manuscript is a copy of either the original or another copy. But such claims are empty because no such documents exist. And if they did, what do we do with the obvious later edits? When the Bible says something like, and this monument still exists to this day, obviously that note was written a long time after the initial events, or why even mention it? Moses didn't record the details of his trip to the mountain to overlook the land of Canaan and his death. Nor did Moses write about the land of Dan when it didn't exist yet. And that's perfectly okay because stories change as context is gained or lost. You know, who knows what was originally called the territory of Dan? Whoever edited it did the audience a favor. And it happens a lot. It needs to happen for meaning to be retained as context is lost. So calling the autographs, the original documents inerrant, is a logical fallacy called an a priori argument. It is based upon the belief that cannot possibly be proven to be true no matter how hard anyone tries. Like when people claim that when we were babies we can, you know, we could see God and hear him. Okay, that's nice. But it assumes a lot of things that don't make any difference when we're adults. It's a non-issue in real life and nothing that can be proven. The Chicago Statement also makes sure that its claims of inerrancy are linked to what was written within its original context. Literary, historical, sociological, etc. And that definitely helps. But very few people are educated in those things. Very few church pastors and even fewer lay people. When these claims trickle down to people who truly haven't ever been introduced to the idea that context is even something that can be known, we instead get into arguments about the Bible needing to be scientifically accurate, especially when one of the claims of the statement is that we cannot overturn anything that the Bible says about creation or the flood or the falling of the walls of Jericho with anything that comes from either science or archaeology. And yet the majority, probably the overwhelming majority, of Old Testament scholars and theologians today recognize, not because of science, but because of biblically-based archaeology, that the original audience of the scriptures would have never looked at Genesis 1 or 2 and seen stories about the material creation of the universe. Even Yeshua, in his rephrasing of the two greatest commandments, used his audience's modern scientific knowledge to change the importance of loving God with all your heart, soul, and strength to loving God with heart, mind, soul, and strength, because they had figured out about 500 years earlier that brains aren't actually useless skull wadding. I can't offer you any easy answers about how the Bible works as far as being inerrant or infallible, but let's talk for a bit about the Bible being authoritative, which almost everyone agrees on. A lot of times this verse is used to attempt to prove inerrancy, but that isn't what the verse is claiming. And this is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17 of the Christian Standard Bible. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you, and you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures, 
which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And let's look at it in my favorite new Bible, the Second Testament, a new translation, written to better reflect the Greek by Scott McKnight. But you remain in the matters in which you were apprenticed and have been committed to, knowing from whom you were apprenticed, and that from infancy you have known the sacred writings, the matters able to wisen you to deliverance through allegiance that is in Christos Jesus. Every scripture is God-spirited and useful for teaching, for convicting, for straightening out, for education that is in righteousness, so God's human may be fit, outfitted for every good work. Of course, these verses are referring to the usefulness and the profitableness of inspiration of scripture and not any sort of word-for-word -word perfection. We can clearly see that they were never they never used it that way either. Not in the Old Testament, which is referred to in, in those quotes, or in the New Testament, which quotes very liberally from the Old. And if we look at the Talmud or other extra-biblical Jewish writings, they weren't any more fussy about precision than the Jews who wrote the New Testament. Pre-Enlightenment thinkers were very different than we are today. And oftentimes our ideas about inerrancy are a reflection of modern and even worldly thought as opposed to how the ancient world thought or any sort of Hebraic mode of thinking, you know, which is pretty much actually just ancient Near Eastern thinking. Why does the author of Timothy speak of the Old Testament this way? Well, because the scriptures were meant first and foremost to lay out God's covenantal salvation plan and to impart wisdom. Genesis 1 through 11 are about the problem, and Genesis 12, plus everything that comes after, is about the solution. And I would agree that the scriptures are flawless in laying those out for us, as long as we are very mindful of the original context, which involved a very flawed society, ancient Israel, which itself set in the middle of an even more flawed worldview that shaped the way everyone looked at life and accepted as normal including the Israelites. Scripture elevates God and not any particular culture with any, within any time period. Scripture teaching wisdom stands out as a constant critic of how we live and believe. It never says, okay, you're good now. Stop where you are. Congratulations, you're Torah observant and I have no more to teach you. Uh, <laughs> on the contrary, Scripture tells us to keep pressing forward beyond the barren basic principles of the Sinaitic Covenant toward the perfection of loving both God and neighbor, and love does no harm. If we stop reading at the end of Deuteronomy, do we have an inerrant and flawless exposition of all God has to speak to us? Of course not. Only the Samaritans actually ever believed that, and maybe the Sadducees as well. The prophets and the Proverbs call us to higher standards than the Torah, much higher standards, and Yeshua goes exponentially farther than anything we find before him. You see, this is where the idea of inspirational infallibility appeals to me personally more than inerrancy. Inerrancy is an idea which cannot be absolutely proven. 
It is a belief. But because the Bible clearly states that it is an inspired collection of writings by different human authors who lived in wildly different times and under different circumstances, we can use inspiration as a starting point, and that is where we can call the Bible authoritative. It absolutely has a proven track record when taken as a whole and not abused of guiding us toward righteousness and salvation within the context of covenant relations. And it leads to a relationship with God and not with a translation. Despite a lot of people going there and believing that this or that version or even the Hebrew and Greek that we have now absolutely reflect original writings when we have loads of manuscript evidence to the contrary. But is scripture useful? Yes. Does the Spirit use scripture in our lives to impart wisdom? Yes. Does the entire Bible from front to back lead us to salvation in Yeshua? Yes, absolutely. Do we need to be taught from the scriptures? No question about it. Has God used them to correct and rebuke us as we read and hear? Well, that's pretty much all it seems to be happening to me when I read them. Does the Bible historically have a consistent reputation for changing people, societies, and cultures for the better when it is available to the public and not just the elites? Yes, yes, yes. Only an inspired book can do that and retain that authority over thousands of years to radically change the world into a more loving and just place, which we even see within secular culture. As a matter of fact, the effect that the Bible has had on, sec on secular cultures should challenge us in some of the areas where they are not only gaining on us, but they've surpassed us. I'm talking about creation care and creature care specifically. They don't have their eyes set on rapture or destruction, and so they are focused on wisely caring for the world as though people will be living here forever. And according to the end of the Bible, they are not that far from being right. How does inspiration work? Good question. One thing is for certain, there are no possessed robots involved. If we can see one thing over the expanse of the biblical record, it's that different writers have entirely different writing styles. If the people were completely taken over and the Bible forced word by word through them, we wouldn't see any individuality. We wouldn't be able to say that we really don't think Paul wrote Hebrews based on, you know, word choices. But what we can see clearly, or at least argue, is that they were impressed with truths and ideas which came through them in certain distinctive ways. They told truth with what language they had available to them, as well as common cultural understandings and ideas. They used familiar metaphors and idioms and their understanding of how the universe worked and whether or not there were or were not other gods in the world. They wrote with a focus on men because the society was focused on males, while still showing a shocking level of egalitarian ideology compared to the rest of the world. The Bible is truly a remarkable document that I believe leads us from sin and death into life in Christ. I mean, I spend every day in the Bible in one way or the other. Every night, David Suchet reads the Psalms to me as I unwind from the day and prepare to fall asleep. It's, it's a nice way to end my day. <laughs> but if the Bible was all I had, 
I wouldn't still be here because it would just be a book. Without the real working of God in my life, which I cherish above and beyond the written word, I would have no reason to teach the Bible or to preach it or to even believe it. Because the Bible is inspired and infallible in that regard, that it is used by the Spirit effectively to guide me, although the Spirit is not limited to the Bible in that job, I don't need everything to be scientifically accurate or to be following the rules of modern historical books. My God is so big, faithful, and trustworthy that He is the focus, and the Bible is helpful and useful, you know, as was written in Second uh, Timothy, but not on the same level as being divine. That's just me, you may feel differently. Really, what I believe is more informed by having been taught by theologians and scholars from other cultures, other than the American battle for the Bible type of stuff. But what I believe is shaped by my personal relationship and the path that I've walked to. It doesn't mean that you or your path or your view of the scriptures is wrong. God once told me never to be separated from anyone on the basis of anything except Christ and him crucified. All this other stuff, we divide over it based upon vanity, most often. All right, so that is actually it for the study series. Yay! 18 parts. Started it last year. <laughs> Jeez. Anyway, uh, next week we've got a special program. I decided to handle context for kids whenever we would come to a portion of the Bible that deals with anything that would put me in an ankle bracelet for talking. And so we're going to be talking about Abram and Sarah using Hagar as a um, sexual surrogate and what that meant in the ancient world and how we can talk to children about it today because the unfortunate matter is that the Bible talks about things that uh, practiced today would clearly be seen as sexual abuse, misuse of power in sexual situations, and is used for grooming in cults. So I want to give parents the information they need to to help them deal with that with their kids. I wrote um, Context for Adults, Sexuality, Social Identity, and Kinship Relations in the Bible to help grown-ups with these really disturbing questions, but um, I got to do a program on this one because I can't expect everyone to buy that book, and really it is very important to cover it with children in a healthy way. Anyway, we'll see you next week for that.